Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My name is John Kelly. I am the brother of Michael Kelly, 17 years old, who was murdered on Bloody Sunday. I was with Michael after he was shot. I helped to carry him place him in the ambulance just outside and take him to the hospital. I was in the mortuary afterwards, seeing the dead bodies, nine, ten dead bodies and so on. But um, then we arrived home and we, my mother was sitting with him. And uh, the house was packed with people. She was sitting with him over. And we walked in and she got up and I said, Ma'am, I will stay My father, he arrived over and I could still see him sliding down the wall when we told him Michael had been shot dead. All this is still embedded in there. Never left. And that's the incredible thing about it too as well. We remember everything, whereas the Paris remember nothing. Especially Soldier F, who murdered Michael. Last year, the people of Derry marked the 50th anniversary of the Bloody Sunday Massacre. The brutal attack by the British Army on unarmed protesters left 14 people dead and has been a source of anger and grief in the city for over half a century. Now, for the first time, following a 30-year campaign by the victims' families, one of the soldiers involved in the killings is facing trial for the murders of two young men and the attempted murders of three more. I went to Derry recently to meet those families to visit the Museum of Free Derry and to see for myself the streets where the killing happened. In this episode, I'm talking to John Kelly, the brother of Michael Kelly, who was killed aged just 17 during Bloody Sunday. John shows me around the Museum of Free Derry where he works and tells me about the museum's origins and purpose. He also talks movingly about the impact of his brother's death on him and his family over the last 50 years. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World. 
So it's really interesting. I mean, you might as well tell us about this place. About I mean, the museum itself? Yeah, tell us yeah, about the course, museum no and when, you know, when it opened, how you collected yeah. up the stuff and Maybe what feedback you get. Well, actually, it actually stemmed from the bloody Sunday issue because um, part of the campaign that we conducted for many, many years, we eventually got a new inquiry into Bloody Sunday, the second inquiry. And we set up a building in the city centre beside the Guildhall. And it was a Bloody Sunday Trust who were responsible for this building. And at that time, I, I, I had my own job. I, I'm an engineer by trade. But then a, a job came along, family liaison worker, they called it, and I applied and got the job. And one of the first tasks we were given was to set up this building in the city centre because what, what the inquiry did, they set up a live link between both so that people could come into the building and they could sit down and watch what was happening on television. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the family members you know, who didn't want to go over to the guild hall and sit in the atmosphere and listen to the evidence. So we set it up in such a way we had a, a private area for the families. Then... We brought in counselling services too as well to support the families because they were enduring the evidence on a daily basis, more or less the last moments of their loved ones' lives and so on, but also to help witnesses, civilian witnesses. Cairn and Madam Finnegan, they were upstairs and they represented the majority of the families. But then we had a space then and it was decided then to set up an exhibition area. And um, what it was simply made up of was a television screen a slide presentation, and a few photographs, and so on. That's what we set up. And believe it or not, we were in that building for seven years for the duration of the inquiry. And the guy who owned the building, he gave it to us the trust free of charge. But when the inquiry came to an end, he decided he wanted to sell it. So he had to go. And um, we found a place around the corner in Foyle Street, and was upstairs, and we reset the exhibition, and people were coming in on a steady basis, you know, during the inquiry and also in this, this other place we were in. But what happened then was that the members of the Trust decided to find a location to set up the museum. The idea came under their head because of the exhibition area and the fact that the public were so interested in it. And we searched and we found a place just here. And what it actually was was three old age pensioners' flats, and they were lying empty, dormant. But the thing about them, they were a centre for antisocial behaviour, drinking drugs and so on. A lot of young ones were hanging about it and so on, you know. So, so they bought it over for a small price, whatever it was. And we moved in and we knocked the building on the, the one to create the first museum of free dairy. And um, we were in that place for nine years. And what we found, it was very, very popular. Um, people were coming to the city, but also visiting us as well. Um, I said about the map earlier on there, we had a map, I had a map behind the reception area. And when we moved out of that old place, I had 120 pins in that map from different nationalities from all over the world. So in other words, we're coming from everywhere, coming from everywhere to visit the museum. And what you find, even the artifacts downstairs and so on, they were actually donated by family members, by the public. Because what is happening these days is, not even a long time ago, people were dying off. And when people went to rent out their houses, and they find these wee bits and pieces, and they were actually giving them to us. And eventually we built up a collection, and we're still collecting. We're still collecting, even to this very day. 
And as I said, we, we, we set it up in such a way, it was visitor-friendly, they could walk around the place and just watch up. But most of it was photographs and reading and so on, you know, plus artifacts, a few artifacts, that's what we had. I'll give you an example, the, the banner downstairs, the civil rights banner was carried on Bloody Sunday. Okay, that's the bloodstained banner. Here's the blood of Barney McWigan. And that banner itself, we didn't know it existed. And this is a, a wee bit of a story behind how the artifacts came about. But we, we got a call to visit a guy called John, Johnny Bond, and he was the husband of Bridget Bond, who was one of the civil rights leader, leaders in the city. You know, And what was happening, his house was being renovated. And he had the banner, which no one knew it existed. But what he did, he gave it to the Derry City Council, a safekeeping while the house was being renovated. So we became very interested in it and we wanted to see it, so we approached the council and we seen it for the first time in the council offices on top of a large table. And we said it was ours. You know, because one of the family members' blood was on it and so on. But the council wanted to keep it. So they set it up in the Tower Museum just across the street, but it was in a small area hanging from two, like two bits of thread inside this glass case. And we weren't too happy with that, you know. And, so, and we approached the council and we said, we want it back. It belongs to us. So at the end of it, we came into an agreement between the Derry City Council and the Trust. Derry City Council owns the banner. We keep it. And that's why it's downstairs. It's like the jackets. A lot of people who were shot in Bloody Sunday, the families kept those for years. And when we approached them, they were prepared to hand it over. You might see a baby grow downstairs. That little baby grow, that little baby grow has my brother's blood on it. When my mother was alive, she kept everything belonging to Michael. His clothes, half-eaten whole nut bar. I have a Mars bar. So we're 51 years old. When Michael was alive, he had a sweet tooth. So my mother would have bought him a couple of bars of chocolate on a Sunday because he used to travel to Belfast and he was attending the Technicology in Belfast. He never got a chance to eat the Mars bars. So I have a Mars bar, so we're 51 years old. But when my mother was alive, she said that anything belonging to Michael would go with her when she died. So the morning she was getting buried, I put everything I thought into the coffin. And away she went. And a couple of weeks afterwards, I was searching my wardrobe. And there I found the baby group. For somehow or other, it got separated from the rest of the clothes. But I intentionally kept the Mars bar, but not the baby group. So there's still something belonging to Michael downstairs. So all those artifacts were handed over, and as I said, by the family members. And some, some of them kept the processions of all of the, the people, their loved ones. But others got destroyed them or done something with them, you know. But we were lucky that they kept some. So we were in that building for nine years, and... Um, Eventually, it was overcome by dampness. So it was decided to demolish the old building, rebuild. So we're here just six and a half years now. It actually cost £2.4 million. And you couldn't put this place anywhere else. And Bloody Sunday nice happened just outside the door. Mm. It happened just outside the door. And the fact that we can actually point out where people died and where the story is, and that's, that's more or less my job, along with the others, that we tell the story the true story about what happened. So that's what we do here. But what it is, is a place of education. We're here to tell a story. We're totally independent and we're not affiliated into any organisation. Actually, the Irish government actually helped to fund this new boat here. How many years after Bloody Sunday did your mother die? My mother died in 2004. So that was 
many years is that? 32 years. 32 so years. that way she carries the grief for your brother. the beginning of the second inquiry. She actually marched along me, Mrs. McKinney and all. There are photographs down there. Mm-hmm. And they marched to the guild hall at the beginning of the inquiry. But they never seen the end. Would she have been on the march? No. Uh, no, I'm telling a lie in such a way. My mother didn't march as such that day. What she did, believe it or not, she tried to follow Michael and keep an eye on him. And the reason why she did it was, when Michael, uh, she was more possessive of Michael. I come from a big family. I had nine sisters and two brothers, Michael being one of the brothers. But Michael was a young boy, three years old. He took a virus that went to his brain. And he went into a coma for three weeks. And he nearly died. Actually, she tells a story about one of the local priests coming in there and, and saying to her, Mrs. Kelly, give him up to God. And she refused to do it. And he survived. He came around. So on the day of the, day of the march, he actually approached her and asked her for permission to go on the march. Could you imagine that nowadays? A 17-year-old asked his mother, sorry, I go out. Bah. You know, but that's a respect within the family. That's the way we were brought up. And she says no initially. But through persuasion, like myself and the sisters, Michael and my mommy's boy, she allowed him to go. The last time I seen Michael was at the beginning of the march. And I advised him to be careful and so on, you know. But what she did was she followed him, or tried to follow him. And um, she lost sight of him. And she went to, her sister lives in a flat down the street there, down in um, Abbey, uh, Abbey Park, isn't it? Abbey Park, I. And she has an upper, upper floor flat. And my mother went into the house, into her flat, and she was looking out the window to see if she could see Michael. And she did actually see him at one point, and she shouted because she was inside, he didn't hear because of the noise and so on. And he ran towards the barricade. But while she was looking out that window, the paratroopers moved in. Yeah, and actually the killer of her son fired the shot from the lower feet. She was up there, and he was down here along his comrades. There's a little tipper wall down the street there, you can still see it. And they were in behind that wall. And my mother was there, and the likes of EFG and Hitch and so on, they landed at this wall. And F fired the shot that killed her son. My mother was there. But she wouldn't have known. She wouldn't have known, you know. So after a while, and actually one of the paratroopers, because they were standing at the window shouting out at them, fired a rubber bullet through the, through the window. And actually part of the glass went into my cousin's eye. And she didn't go to the hospital until later on at night or something like that. But my mother went home and she was told that Michael had been shot. But it was fine, he was shot in the ankle. He was okay. But while in between times we were over in the hospital, I was with Michael after he was shot. I helped to carry him and place him in the ambulance just outside and take him to the hospital. I was in the mortuary afterwards, seeing the dead bodies, nine, ten dead bodies and so on. But um, then we arrived home and we, my mother was sitting with him. And the house was packed with people. And she was sitting waiting over. And we walked in and she got up and I said, Ma'am, Michael's dead. Bedlam. She tells a story and she doesn't remember anything for a long time because directly afterwards she was useless to herself. She couldn't even look after herself or look after the children. So some of the older girls had to move back into the house again to look after the, her and the younger girls. 
But some of the stories, you know, that I you know, it's been told about her. For instance, on the night that Michael got out of, out of the hospital and he was laid out in his wee coffin in his bedroom, myself and a few others <clears throat> were sitting in the room with Michael and all of a sudden the mother came busting through the door. Now, my mother was less than five foot, wee red-haired woman. And she went to the coffin and lifted Michael out, crying, Michael's son, Michael's son. And we had to restrain her and put Michael back in. She didn't remember doing that. And even afterwards, when my mother was a very religious woman, she went to Mass every day. But part of her routine then was going to the graveside. And there was just one particular day that there was snow on the ground, and she was seen walking towards the cemetery with a blanket under her arm. And a woman approached her and asked her, Mrs. Kelly, where are you going with the blanket? She says, well, Michael will be cold. Taking her where he puts up where he's grave to keep him warm. Downtown, she would have... I've seen a young fellow with long hair. She would have walked over and touched his hair and stuff, all that there. But she had no memory of all that stuff. But thank God she survived in 2004. She took ill and she took a stroke, a couple of strokes. She was bedridden, couldn't get out of her bed. And there was this one day I went up. She always asked about what was happening down at the, at the inquiry because she was there at the beginning, but she didn't see any of the rest of it. And I t- told her one day, ah, they were all declared innocent. Told her a lie. It's a piece of fire. And um, she says, that's grand. So she went away happy. So that's the story behind my mother. So, and she always, she always said, you know, the link, one of the links of the chain was taken out by Michael being, being killed and murdered that day. Did you get counselling, John? Me? No. no. This is my counselling. So talking to people are coming all, you know. You know what I'm saying? But that image of going into the hospital and seeing all the bodies oh, in the morgue. I'm sitting here talking to you and I can see it. I can still see it. I can still see, even within the hospital, the, that the doctor and the nurse approaching us after we brought Michael in and them declaring him dead and so on. Walking around the hospital afterwards, paratroopers walking about with their weapons, laughing and joking at each other and so on. All the people all around the place all crying. And, but I talked to you, actually talked to some of the individual and people who were injured that day. I remember that well. My father, he arrived over and I could still see him sliding down the wall when we told him Michael had been shot dead. All this is still embedded in there. Never left. And that's the incredible thing about it too as well. We remember everything, whereas the Paris remember nothing. Especially Soldier F, who murdered Michael. And Don Mullen tells the story that when he was in the room, when he was given evidence, Soldier F was given evidence, in nearly 500 occasions he said he took note didn't recall or didn't remember. This is a guy, five people, murdered, attempted murder six hours, and said he didn't remember anything at all. So it's still there. It always will be. And how do you feel about the, the trial, the upcoming trial? There's something we worked hard for. We worked hard for it. It's just a only got the one. You know, there were 18 involved in it. Seven of them were dead. There's still 11 there. But the way we can only control ourselves, if we get him for one, we get him for everybody. And have you seen him? Oh, yeah. When he was given evidence at the inquiry in London, now that we had to go to London to hear their evidence because we were afraid to come back to Derry. They feared for their lives. So we sat in the same room as him and we listened to him and watched him and it showed absolutely no remorse for what he did. Not at all. Didn't give a damn. Every one of them were the same. Not one of them were any different. Was nice, but we did it because we knew we had to do it. 
That week alone was the biggest week of family members travelling to London to hear the evidence of the soldiers. So he said and lied to his teeth. But it was worth it. It's a long journey. Mm. It's been a really long journey. And all these years later, Mm. you know, I suppose, I don't know whether you can explain in words the effects that Michael's death had on your wider family. Obviously, your mother was hugely affected by it. I'm sure you all were. You see, at the time... Well, when the something like this here happened, you were just told to get on with it. There was thing as counselling or help in those days. Although my mother ended up in the asylum for a while too as well. Should they gave them tablets, didn't they? Yeah, something like that there. And as I say, my mother at the time, Michael, and during the, and during the week, she never enough for five days. She was, she was um, you know, totally pulled up, if you, if you want to call it. She should have slept for a week, but she didn't. So there was, it was down to the, the families themselves and the individuals they supported and the community because there was no help out there for any, in any way whatsoever. So my mother dealt with it her way. My father dealt with it his way too as well, you know. Actually, when he died um, in 1991, you know, he said very little. But we found afterwards, um, have you ever known wallpaper, sample books? Yeah. No, like thick books. We found one of those, and inside was cuttings about, you know, about Bloody Sunday and all. We didn't know he was doing that. He was actually doing this sort of thing in his own way. Own way. Hiding so, them. Yeah, he was dealing with it in his own way, you know, and, and dealing with it. And, but what, what really what people try to do was get on as best they could with their own lives. Like my mother and father, they dealt with everything at the time, you know, about going to meetings and all the legalities of it and stuff like that there. I was just there in the background. But then when my father died in 1991, then the campaign started in 1992, I stepped in. I always questioned myself, if my father had been still alive at the time, what would I have done? I don't know. But, but they dealt with everything right up, right up to 1992, my mother and my father, you know, so they had their own ways in those days. So every family, every family can tell a different story, but the story's still the same. They all suffered equally. Your mother had a premonition that day, or was she always no, no. over sort of protective? Overprotective of him, you know, as yeah. I said. But in saying that, my, my mother and father would have been fair to every one of us. If one got a suite, they all got a suite. And if one got a pair of socks, next week they all one got a pair of socks. This is the way it worked. Yeah. Because there were very little money in those days, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just the way it was, and that's the way we were brought up. Big family. They used to describe what she went through as. They'd gone mad with grief. Almost definitely. My mother never got over his death. They always had a, he always has a, even to the day she died, she had a photograph of him beside her, you know, all the time. All the time. Talked about him all the time and so on. Like there were stories when, when he was alive. Um, it, was, it, it used to uh, <coughs> rear pigeons, you know, and he put him away in Belfast. He was trying to become a sewing machine mechanic and he had pigeons in the backyard. I mean, my mother actually helped him to build a loft for the pigeons. But when he came back, that Saturday, he had to go to work. And he worked away down in Maydown, about five miles, six miles from here. But he used to take the pigeons down to Maydown and release them. And my mother had to stand at the loft waiting for them to arrive before she went back into the house again. That's the sort of thing, you know, that's the sort of thing he did, you know. And then she had a girlfriend. He was going steady at the time. It's just a normal guy. Normally, you all never in trouble, totally non-political. Just that he went to the march that day for the crack, and that's what happened. 
And do you enjoy working here and meeting people and explaining to oh, them? Oh, yeah. It was, a part, it was an important part of the process here too as well. That, uh, as I said earlier on, the, the, the museum is about education, about telling the story. Although, yesterday I had a, an individual was in here yesterday and she, she more or less said to me that, do you not think what you're doing is dragging up the past all the time? You know? And I, the only way I can answer that is we're not bragging, dragging, dragging up the past. What we're doing is educating. People should learn from our story and hopefully it will never, people, it'll never happen again. This is why we do it, you know? So everybody works on here, they all enjoy it. If, if that's the right word. We're here to do a job. We're here to do a job. And I've been doing it for a long time. And I suppose, kind of, you know, you're sort of setting out the truth really here, aren't you? Because that's what's so important about all this, the lies that were told all along and from the beginning. We don't hide from the truth. We tell it watch and all. Michaels was, Michaels was one of the casements they used, you know, this... Um, um, sham forensics, you know, to blacken them, you know, and that was one of the that was one of the you know the the, the, the things that we really set out to dismantle, and um, you know, like this, this so-called paraffin test, they called the sodium designate test. It wasn't even; it simply tested for lead, you know, and like lead is the only one of like. I mean, I mean, cartridge discharge residue, it's, you know, there are five, five elements to it. It's like, you know, the glade, um, barium, and antimony, and um, et cetera. Um, and only tested for lead. Jim Ray, he was a gunman. He worked as a welder. Michael, he was up in, in Belfast doing this, uh, uh, at, the, at the tech, studying. Um, you know, other people were painters. Mm-hmm. Mechanics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mechanics. You know, the lead paint in those days. Um, but the, the forensics was uh, Barney McGuigan. I mean, that was, that was one of the, you know, the worst sort of uh, obscenities. You know, the, there was a scarf used to, I mean, he was left with a very, very horrific wound after they shot him. And that was sort of wrapped around his, his face, wasn't it? Just to give yeah. him some sort of dignity. And uh, Widgery's, um so obviously the scarf, I think, went down along with the remains to the hospital that was taken. And they said that the scarf was used to wrap up a, a pistol that had recently been fired, you know. And I mean, it just was just, just the worst obscenity um, ever. But, um, you know, you know, we absolutely took those forensics apart. Um, and, you know, to the stage that where um, Christopher Clark, the counsel of the tribunal, um, he, you know, he said to John, Dr. John Martin, wasn't it? Uh, had somebody got to you? And that was a good day. We had some great days too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, some beautiful days, cracker days. And if, if, as bad as it was, I mean, we gave him an awful hammering. And uh, it was a good day. Yeah, well, it was brilliant. Uh, I was relieved to see it over, to be truthful, you know. Aye. Uh, because I remember that morning, see, the first time he was to appear that morning. You were very wound up. Oh, I, 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 I actually went down on my knees. We were staying in the hotel in London, and I went down on my knees and prayed before it, and I never do that. Just to give me the strength to get through it. But one of the things that did happen, I don't know if you know about it, when we went on this saddle, I couldn't get into the family area. It was jammed, the place was packed. So I went on, had to go into the public area. With 200 people. Yeah, had to go into the public area. City. Couldn't get in. And my job, family is, and working was to look after the families. Never we went to London or anywhere we went. 
And this girl came up to me and she said to me, one of the family says, look, John, there's something happening out there, somebody's bag or something. They used to they know the security and blah, blah, blah. They wouldn't let him through with his bag. I says, OK, I'll go out and sort it. So I got up, they step out. Big Jerry Doty, another family member, says, sit you down. This is your day. I'll deal with that. So we're there for each other. We're there to support each other. Definitely. But that was... It was encouraging that day, to say the least, when, they have, when he was given evidence, you know. But it was hard to sit and watch him. I'm sure it was. They watched his, not only what he looked like. It was two full days. Yeah, two full days it was. But his attitude. His attitude, is, and he didn't, you know, he didn't give a damn. He was so, to me, he was so small and insignificant. Thanks, John. No problem at all. Thank you, John. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.